Welcome along to another episode of the How I Caught the Wrestling Bug podcast. I'm your host, David Lovell. Delighted to say, joining me right now is Tim Page. Tim, how's it going? Glad to be with you. It's great to have you on. Uh, now, a lot of the guests we've had so far have been people that do podcasts already, or they write for wrestling websites and that kind of thing, but you're just a big fan and have been for, what, over 30 years now? Yeah, just about 30 years. Uh, I got into it in the mid-80s. I grew up in the Boston area, which of course was a huge WWF territory. Uh, so if you were a kid in the mid-80s in that area, uh, wrestling kind of found you, you know, because the, the syndicated shows were kind of interspersed with the Saturday morning cartoons. So it's like at one minute you're watching Muppet Babies, and the next minute <laughs> WWF Superstars is on the is on the channel. Uh, so it was pretty hard to escape. Um, and, and even if you weren't a fan, it's like your aunts and uncles would bombard you with wrestling toys because they just assumed, well, everybody must, all the kids like wrestling. So that was really my beginnings of it was just, you know, sort of being in, in an area where WWF was really, really popular. The first question I ask everyone is, what is your earliest memory of, of wrestling? So that would, would pretty much be it, getting the toys, even though you weren't necessarily a fan? Yeah, I would say that. I remember one Christmas, uh, we were like three years old. I say we because I have a twin brother, so if I say we, I'm usually referring to him and, and myself. So our, one of our uncles, when we were like three years old, gave us a Hulk Hogan uh, weightlifting set. You had like this big barbell in it and some dumbbells. Uh, certainly wouldn't recommend any three-year-old engage in uh, training with heavy weights. Uh, but that's just how kind of ubiquitous it was back then. Uh, so we, we didn't use the weights when we were three, but when we were like nine or ten, we wanted to look like Slater from Saved by the Bell, so we pulled out the Hogan <laughs> weight set. And apart from the weights, it had this giant, and I'm sure maybe other people who were listening maybe had this themselves as a kid, but it had this giant poster in it that showed you every exercise you could do with the barbells, with the dumbbells, body weight stuff, and every muscle in the body that those things worked. It was like the best lesson in exercise physiology you could have hoped for. And they gave it to you at the age of three? At the age of three, <laughs> yeah. My uncles weren't necessarily the brightest uh, bulbs in the, in the shed, as they say. Um, so, so which wrestlers captured your imagination as a kid? Would, would Hogan be one of them? Oh, definitely, especially in the mid-'80s. It was like Hogan, uh, Junkyard Dog, Hillbilly Jim. I think as we moved into the, late, the later 80s, it was, uh, you know, Jake the Snake and Ultimate Warrior. I mean, just really those really colorful baby faces in, uh, in the WWF at the time who were always made to look very good. You know, I think one of the things that got uh, my brother and my friends and I into wrestling was we were big sports fans as well. And I think we saw a lot of similarities between you know, the pro wrestling presentation with the big crowds and, you know, you're cheering the baby face and you're going the heel. Uh, so we really, like, enjoyed the sports element of it. And the beauty about wrestling back then was the home team was always booked to win, eventually. Uh, so it was really nice, you know, being in an area where our sports teams uh, were struggling mightily at the time that you knew if you put on uh, Saturday night's main event, it would end with Hogan posing. Right, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what was the uh, the first live event that you attended? So I didn't attend a live event until about 1992. Uh, my parents did not like wrestling. They were not supportive of my brother and I watching it. Um, 
which, you know, it's really not a parent's place to judge uh, the interests of their child. If your child wants to play a sport, you should support that. If they want to play the piano, you should support that. If they want to be a wrestling fan, you should support that. You shouldn't replace your judgment for theirs. But eventually they came around, and so when we were about 10 years old, it was December 5th, 1992, uh, which was a really interesting time in the WWF because this is just as a steroid um, scandal was starting to bubble up. So Hogan had retired, you know, at WrestleMania the prior year. Warrior was gone. Sid was gone. Bulldog was gone. It was a very thin roster at, at that time. And so the main event, it was Ric Flair uh, challenging Bret Hart for the title. If you remember, Bret Hart had won it uh, at essentially a house show or a TV taping in, in Saskatoon back in, in October. Um, so this was a rematch of that. It was a great match. And the other uh, awesome match on the card, there was a Shawn Michaels-Marty Jannetty Intercontinental title match. Uh, and so it, it, the building was probably about a quarter full. This is the old Boston Garden. Um, not, a, not a high point for WWF, but it was my first event. You know, we were maybe like fifth row ringside. I mean, it, it, was, it was awesome. Like you said, that was very much a transitional period, wasn't it, for, for the WWF at the time? Because... That was when I think they had just let like Warrior and and Bulldog had, had both been let go around that sort of time, hadn't they? I think um, people forget that you know Bulldog had that big match with Brett at SummerSlam that year, and like a few months later he was he was essentially gone, wasn't he, from the company? Yeah, you know Dave Meltzer called Survivor Series '92 one of the most steroid-free shows you could see, <laughs> or something like that, because all of those guys were just not on the show. And that, that was a, a tough time for me because I know one of the questions you're going to ask is, you know, who was your favorite uh, wrestler or who really, you know, caught you uh, early on? And for me, it was the Macho Man Randy Savage. He was always my favorite. And during this particular time, uh, Vince wanted him to be a commentator. Right, yeah. And so from about, you know, um, November of 92, after the Survivor Series, that was kind of his last big angle up until he joined WCW in late 94, early 95, yeah. he didn't get to wrestle a whole lot. Yeah, I think the, the last sort of big match I can recall him having was that, um, was it like a false cut anywhere match with Crush? Yeah, that was um, WrestleMania 10. WrestleMania 10, um, yeah. Yeah, he was still very much a part-timer. And actually, I, I believe the story there was that they had turned Crush heel, or were trying to turn That's Crush right. heel. Yeah, he was like a Japanese, a Japanese sympathizer yeah. or something, wasn't he? Yeah, well, Mr. Fuji was his manager, and I guess Savage said he was good friends with, with Brian Adams. He said, look, I'll get him over. I'll get him over as a heel, because uh, the Kona Crush thing certainly wasn't working. And so that's when they shot the whole thing with Yokozuna giving Crush four bonsai drops, and Savage was at ringside as the announcer, and Vince is like, your announcer contract, you can't go in the ring. And finally, after four bonsai drops, uh, Macho says, screw the contract, I'm going to go pull my friend out. And then, I guess, Crush was resentful, he hung up on him, they had the Savage Crush Summit. So that, that was awesome, that was a great angle, but yeah, Savage was still, at that point, very much a part-timer. Um, what I really loved about Macho Man was, you know, we look back now, 30 years later, we can articulate, you know, what was different about somebody, or what we, we picked up on, but as a kid... I just knew that there was something different about the way he worked, the way he talked, the way he carried himself. It was like everything he did was super unique. And as a kid, that just stood out to me between the costumes, the, the high-flying moves he did as a heavyweight, which heavyweights in WWF were not exactly you know, known as high-flyers uh, during that era. 
So he was just, he was always my favorite, and, and I was so happy when he finally got to wrestle again in WCW. So when you would have started watching it, I'm guessing he would have been, he would have been a heel at the time though, wouldn't he? He would have been the Macho King. Yeah, uh, this was probably, well, yeah. when we first started watching religiously, I believe he had just turned. You know, this is kind of the lead up to WrestleMania five. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, but even then, I just, I, I still maintain he was the babyface in that Hogan. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Mega powers, blah, blah. He was totally the babyface, uh, looking back at it as an adult. But I, I still, even as a heel, as the Macho King, was just so entertained by the guy. I definitely think he should have won at WrestleMania five. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was time to take the belt off him at that point. But um, what are your sort of. Um, I mean, at any point did you stop watching wrestling? Did you, did you ever at any point lose interest in it? So I never stopped altogether. Um, I would say there have been points where I've been less interested in it. Um, certainly, I, I think the first time where my friends and I really kind of fell off the map almost completely was in 1994. And that was just because we were, you know, 11, 12 years old, and we outgrew it. You know, in the same way people outgrow cartoons... It was like we grew up, but the product really didn't. Um, you know, and, and I never fell completely out of it again. Like, I would always try to keep up with who the champion was, what the next big show was. And again, when Macho Man joined WCW, then I would make it a point to tune into WCW Saturday night whenever I could. Uh, you know, sort of starting in early 95. And I would say one thing that's kept me engaged as a fan, um, even when I haven't been super into the product has been the internet you know in the mid 90s we got prodigy internet and that was the you know the bob Ryder message boards mm-hmm. um and so even at times where i haven't been too enthused about the on-screen product that various companies have been producing i always followed the internet you know i would always read the observer site uh the torch there was a great site back in the day uh, about 20 years ago it was called a1wrestling.com and they would link you to all the big websites observer torch one wrestling, um, wrestle zone, like all of them. Uh, so it was really hard to f- fall out of it completely when I-, I would pretty much start every day with <laughs> heading over to that site <laughs> and reading the wrestling news. And what are your sort of viewing habits now? So, so what shows do you sort of religiously watch? I mean, do you sort of watch Dynamite every week? Yeah, I watch Dynamite every week. Um, I-, I actually, I when the two shows, NXT and Dynamite, were both going to be on Wednesday, I thought it was going to be like reliving the Monday Night Wars where I was flipping back and forth, you know, constantly to both shows and then, you know, watching recorded versions of both afterwards. But I find that I, I don't flip over to NXT as much as I thought. So I definitely watch Dynamite. I watch parts of NXT. At this point, WWE for me is background TV if there's nothing else on. Um, you know, I'll throw it on, something catches my attention, fine, but I am long past, you know, sitting there watching a plotting three-hour Raw with uh, commercials during every match. Yeah, I think everyone is pretty much at that point, apart from maybe like Dan uh, Loki, who watches it every single week and does the uh, the Fred on the Fight Game podcast, but uh, yeah, I think everyone's kind of got to that point now where they just watch the pay-per-views, you know, and they, mm-hmm. because the pay-per-views are normally... I say I feel like I say this in every single episode, but the pay-per-views are always pretty good, you know, because yeah. the workers they've got are great. But I think everyone just doesn't like the storylines, 
you know and it, so a lot of it doesn't make any sense because Vince comes along and rewrite has the show rewritten and yeah, it's really hard to follow and I think it's very hard to sort of get behind you know and, and, and really watch three hours of anything not just wrestling yeah you know I'm, I'm going to uh, put a, a little spin on that. It, is I don't think the problem with Raw is that it's three hours. Because I watch football games that are three, three and a half hours. Right. Yeah. I'm not bored. I can sit there and do that. When they took Raw from two hours to three hours back in 2012, we were excited. We're like, maybe we'll get a change in the format. Maybe they'll do like an hour of squash matches, and then we'll get the Raw that we're used to. But they literally, when they went from two hours to three hours did nothing to change the format. You still get your opening, you know, 20-minute talking segment. You get exactly the same number of matches, same number of angles. All they did was make the matches longer. So instead of having a six-minute match contained to one segment, and then commercial, and then you come back, you're on to the next thing, now almost every match has a commercial in the middle. And so it just makes the show feel like a chore to watch. In uh, the other problem, so SmackDown is only two hours. For me, that's just as difficult to show to watch because even though it's an hour shorter, it's paced out the same way. You know, where you have these 12, 13-minute TV matches with a, a commercial in between. It's the same sort of laborious process of, of watching. And you mentioned the writing and the storylines. I, I think a lot of their problems has to do with you know, you hear them talk about, I don't know if it's 25 or 30 people that they have writing the show. Right, yeah. That's too many people to write one show because then you don't have anybody writing for characters. And I know one of the former writers, I think it was someone named Roberts or Jacobs, was on uh, Observer Live with Brian a couple of years ago. And Brian asked him, he said, what's the process? Well, you know, how do you divvy up the work? And the guy said, well, he said maybe four writers will be in charge of the New Day versus the bar match for this month, and a different four writers will be in charge of this particular program. And the problem with that is all they're doing is building matches from one month to the next. There's no long-term planning. There's no long-term story development. I mean, the big issue they have can tell WWE, and look at just case in point this Monday. Bill Goldberg is challenging for the title at the Royal Rumble, because, quote, they didn't have anybody yeah, else right. ready. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it, and so the problem with, with just that building month to month is you're not allowing characters to evolve and grow over time. When you look at the Attitude Era and people who were the big stars during that time, your Austin, Rock, Foley, those were characters that were very different at the time they were big from when they started with the company. You know, Austin was the ringmaster. Then he became Stone Cold, developed an edge, found something big. Triple H was the blue blood, right? And then he got hooked right. up with Sean and DX, got a little bit of an edge, evolved into the game, Triple H. And so when you are allowing characters to change and evolve, that's how people kind of hit their stride with the fans and become superstars. When, when the writers are just saying, okay, we're going to do the uh, New Day versus the Usos uh, coming up the pay-per-view, so this Monday, Kofi will beat Jay. Next Monday, Jay will beat uh, Big E. And then we'll do a tag match, and it'll be a draw. And then they'll fight at the pay-per-view. And that's another thing that irritates me, is it really feels like once you get to the pay-per-view, 
the guys have already fought each other like a million times. You know, it used to be they, you know, apart from like a, a sneak attack here and there, when you saw a match, it was it was a, you know, a unique feeling. Like this is a, this is a big happening. All the pay per views are just literally rematches from the the month before. A lot of times, you know, it's like we've seen we already saw all these yeah. matches last month. So, what, do we do we need to see them again? Kind of thing. Yeah, I definitely see all that. I think it was a lot better when Vince and Pat were just write the like six months yeah. of storylines driving from town yeah. to town you know back in the day it was so much it seemed so much better back then but then again mm -hmm. i mean times are different you only have four pay-per-views mm -hmm. a year you know so you've got to take that into account yeah. i guess as well but um as far as you know we, we come on now to the rapid fire questions which they're never really rapid fire to be honest <laughs> with you but the your favorite your favorite wrestler of all time you kind of already mentioned that that's kind yeah. of a hard one to really pinpoint but would it be randy savage would you say it is and it's not even close nobody since has ever you know grabbed me the same way and you know it's interesting about uh randy savage he was a small guy he was billed as 6'2 245 he was more like 4 5 10 180 and he knew that and i remember watching uh, his documentary on the network and his brother you know the genius lanny poffo talked about that he said Randy knew he was small, so he knew he needed to get the over-the-top outfits. He had to stand up on his tippy toes. You know, he needed the intimidating voice. And to me, there's a real lesson in that uh, for guys in modern-day WWE. We know Vince has a giant bias towards big guys and a giant bias against the smaller guys. So Randy knew if he was going to succeed in that environment as a small guy, he had to be bigger. He had to find a way to make himself bigger, and he did a great job at that. And I've been harping on a guy who I like very much, and I'm disappointed, uh, who has, you know, sort of, again, been shoved down the card by Vince, and, and that's Ricochet. Ricochet right. is the opposite of that. Ricochet is a small guy who, by virtue of the way he works and carries himself, makes himself seem even smaller. Next time you see a Ricochet match... Take note of the way that he sells. The spaghetti legs, the head bobbing around, the bug eyes. I mean, he looks like he should be a villain in a Popeye cartoon who just got popped. You know, he's a guy who, if he just made some minor modifications and didn't throw it in your face that, hey, I'm small and I'm going to work small and I'm going to contort my body every time I take a bump, I think that would go a long way toward, you know, maybe Vince overlooking... Uh, the size aspect a little bit, and I, I think a lot of guys, um, you know, again, could really take a lesson from the Macho Man in terms of making yourself bigger than your actual physical stature. I was really disappointed when when Ricochet had that match with uh, with Brock. I think it was in mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia. That could have been a really great match because because Brock has had great matches with really yep. with, with smaller opponents like Eddie. You know, mm -hmm. for instance, I, I think of that Eddie Guerrero match he had, which was amazing. They could have had a great match, but instead they got like what forty seconds, and it was over. Yeah, so, I mean, it, again, it, we've heard it all depends on whether or not Brock wants to do business. You know, he'll he'll have a great match with AJ, but I guess maybe Ricochet wasn't quite up to his uh, his standard for really putting himself out there. Because he really put Drew McIntyre over huge at WrestleMania, uh, but not so much against Dean Ambrose. Uh, but uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, favorite match of all time? My favorite match of all time 
this is not the greatest wrestling match I've ever seen, but I always point to this as an example um, of great wrestling, and that was Savage versus Ric Flair at WrestleMania Eight. Oh, okay. okay. They were in a blood feud. Savage wanted to kill Ric Flair. You know, he had the, the pictures of Elizabeth in the magazine, and she was mine before she was yours, all that stuff. Savage wanted to kill Flair. So you didn't see them standing in the ring politely during introductions. They didn't lock up into a headlock and trade hammer locks and a top wrist lock. That's what you see nowadays when guys are in an alleged blood feud. They go up and wrestle the same damn match that if it were just two random guys having a match. Savage, you know, he made his entrance first. He bolts up the ramp and attacks Flair as he's coming down. Right? Mr. Perfect pulls him off like, like Flair's about to die. And so the whole match, there was not one hammerlock, not one headlock. It was Randy Savage trying to kill Ric Flair. So that was one thing that was great about it. The other thing about it, was WrestleMania 8 was in a big uh, dome stadium. And you have to work differently when you're in a big stadium setting than you would in an arena because most of the people in the dome are like a mile away. They don't get the nuance of facial expressions, of little subtleties. You have to work a more a match with more high spots, a match with less subtlety, more you know, more big stuff, and so I really thought the match also was perfect uh, for a dome setup. And so that's a match that I, I, you could strap me to a chair, make me watch it all day, and I will never get bored. But the other one that I would say is probably the best match I've ever seen was uh, Austin versus Brett from WrestleMania 13. Right, yeah. From beginning to end, I mean... They, they took us on a ride. Like, I don't know what they had planned coming in, but Austin always talks about, and again, this, this is sort of against the, the way it's currently done sometimes, which is you go in there with a script and you stick to the script and, and you just sort of plow through it. If the people aren't receptive to something, you've got to change it up. You know, it's about taking the people on a ride, and I just felt like that match, from the, the moment they started till the end, you were just with them. And I will say, that was a, if that was a five-star match, there's no way any other match on the planet could be a full two stars higher than that. That's not the f you're, you're not the first person to bring that match up, but you're the first person to mention Flair versus Savage at WrestleMania 8, and that's, that's a match that I think is very underrated. In fact, that WrestleMania, I think, is underrated because it's one that people don't really talk about. But there was another great match on that show, which was Brett and Roddy Piper. Mm -hmm. For the for the IC title, that was a really great match as well. Uh, but I, I I kind of feel that WrestleMania was a bit underrated. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I would put that. You know, if you were to, to sort of rank WrestleManias, like there's definitely the bad ones, there's the okay ones, and then there's the the really good to great ones. I would put that in that top tier. I mean, it was great. From uh, the the Brett Piper match was a, was a great match. Um, you know, and it really back then you really felt like the Intercontinental title was a prize. You know, something that was, it wasn't just a, a throwaway thing. It was a, a true prize. Um, and so that match was great. Savage Flair was great. And also, at uh, the end with the Ultimate Warrior coming back. Like, that was a great moment. I mean, talk about a way to end a WrestleMania. Yeah, so I definitely agree. That, that was one of the better ones. Now, you mentioned, uh, in, in a prior question, you mentioned Drew McIntyre and um, 
and Brock Lesnar at, at WrestleMania. And one thing that's been eating at me is is I, I I don't think Drew's really over. It's hard to say because we don't have crowds. Right. But the viewership numbers don't seem to be holding up. And I think the problem that I saw with that was for basically two plus years, Drew McIntyre was a mid-card heel. And then out of nowhere, he comes into this Rumble match. Great spot where he eliminates Brock. Great spot where he wins the thing. But to me, that doesn't make a main event level babyface. Because it really requires time to build that emotional connection with the audience. Where when you look at guys who've gotten their shot at the main event, Savage in 88, you know, Hogan before that, Ultimate Warrior, Steve Austin, it's basically Shawn Michaels in 95, 96. It's the fans just clamoring for it. And then they get it. And I think that's the part that was missing with Drew. Like, we never had the chance to really get to know him as a baby face and start pulling for him. It was just kind of like, oh, here you go. He's your Royal Rumble winner and he's your champion. No, I agree. I, I do think it was it was done. I mean, you like you say, you can't make a guy, but having him win the Royal Rumble doesn't make someone a top a top guy. You have to do it gradually over time. And and, and Daniel Bryan would be another great example of that, where mm -hmm. they didn't have him win the Royal Rumble. I mean, they maybe should have done in in hindsight. He should have maybe won the Royal Rumble and gone to WrestleMania. They went a different route with it because. Daniel Bryan got so over, they kind of had to. I mean, if they had done Randy Orton and Batista in the main event, I mean, I can only imagine how that would have gone over. So. Yeah, and, you know, I think for me that's where um, I, I think things really took a turn for the worse for WWE when they really started fighting the fans. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. Saying, it doesn't matter what you want. We're still getting our TV money. You know, our, their profits have never been higher. But that, that Bautista Royal Rumble where we were all expecting Daniel Bryan at number 30 and it was Rey Mysterio, that is some of the best, like, so bad it's good television I've seen in wrestling. I, I love going back to watch that. Um, and, and to me, that was really, that was where the tide turned, um, I, I think. You know, uh, people point to the fall of 2018 as being when things really started going downhill. But I think, you know, the, the seeds of that really for me were sown with the whole Daniel Bryan thing. Yeah, and I think to a, to a point a little bit with CM Punk prior to that as well, yeah. because al although he had the title for was it over a year, I mean they never really fully embraced him. I mean he, I think he was like semi main in most of his uh, most of the pay per views that year of of twenty would have been would have been twenty twelve, wasn't it when he was the champion? Um, they never really the summer of Punk would have been so much more successful but they never really truly got behind him i felt and losing the triple h i thought was a huge mistake at the time when they did that yeah there was no need for that i mean i was irritated when he lost you know that long reign he lost the title to the rock to set yeah. up the cena program it was like can't you give this guy the title man does rock cena need a title on, on the line no uh, you know so yeah i, I agree i yeah, CM Punk definitely, and I believe it was was that Bautista Rumble was that his last uh, his last match? I it was. He, yeah, because yeah. he was a me he was meant to face Triple H, mm -hmm. and so of course they ended up doing Daniel Bryan versus Triple H, and and I still think they would have had to put Daniel Bryan in the main event anyway. Uh, maybe they would have, would have just done Punk and Triple H, and Daniel Bryan would have got into the main event another way. I don't know. We, we'll never know. But yeah, I think um, that was definitely that was definitely Punk's last show.
And yeah, I think he could have been. I mean, I don't think turning John Cena would have ever been the right thing to do. But if you were ever going to do it against anyone, it would have been CM Punk. He, he, he was the guy that was hot enough to be the babyface against the hill John Cena. But I yeah, think... I, yep, definitely, definitely. But I understand why they didn't do that because the Make a Wish thing, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great thing. It really is, and, and I, you can't take it away from John Cena the amount that he's done for that charity. Um, the best show you've ever attended live, what would that be? So, when I read that question, I was tempted to say WrestleMania 28, which was down here in, in Miami. Um, yeah, I was there. Uh, didn't get to see the Daniel Bryan. Uh, Shameless match because there was a big backlog at uh, at security outside, so a lot of people didn't get to see that match live. But that was an awesome show. But then I forgot I was at AEW's Bash at the Beach, uh, January fourteenth of twenty twenty. Uh, it was probably the last you know sporting event I attended before everything got shut down. And so I'm going to say that was the best. That was an awesome show. It was fun. It was you know DDP came back wrestled the biggest pop of the night was ddp doing his dive to the outside it was just a fun night it was a great show and when i was sitting there you know with my friend i was like this doesn't seem like a new company you know they seem to have hired the right people you know to run events and and do things and i was just so impressed with it wrestlemania 28 that would have been um I'm trying to think, was that Punk and Jericho for the title that year? And, and the first Rock and Cena match, wasn't it? That was the first Rock Cena match, and it was Daniel Bryan versus Sheamus for the world title. That was the one where Daniel Bryan lost it in like three seconds. Yeah, that's right. That was kind of the start yeah. of his big sort of run, yeah. wasn't it, really? That's how it kind of started there with that match. Yeah, that's where people really started getting behind him. You know, because the, they you know said, oh, okay, they're screwing him over, so we're going to really get behind him. And it, it worked with Daniel Bryan. Um, they've tried it with other people since. It hasn't been as successful. But that was just, if you haven't been to a WrestleMania, you got to go to WrestleMania. I mean, I will say, for as down as I can get on WWE for their storylines, they put on phenomenal live shows. Oh, yeah. I mean, from the, the pyro and the fireworks, and Flo Rida was there, you know, the, the rapper, and he was awesome, and I don't even like rap or Flo Rida, but I was like, damn, that was awesome. Um. Now, the last question I ask everyone, and a lot of people don't know how to really go about answering it because it's kind of uh, an open-ended question and you can sort of go at it at any sort of angle you want to, really. But if you could change one thing about the wrestling business, what would it be? I wish everybody, from the people in the industry to fans, understood that there is room out there for more than one company. So many people within the industry, they see uh, another company being successful somehow as, as taking something away from them, like Seth Rollins a couple of years ago, that idiot going, well, they're trying to take food off of my table. And it's like, you, you big dummy, your friends are getting five-year contracts instead of three-year contracts, and they're being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars more than they otherwise would because there's now a viable competitor out there. How is that a bad thing? I mean, Jinder Mahal getting like $500,000 a year. I mean, that's that's an abomination, <laughs> right? But that comes about because there's competition out there. So the only people, the only person who doesn't want competition is Vince McMahon. So for the, the, the WWE honks who somehow wish the demise of AEW, even from a fan's perspective, they don't understand 
the, the product that they will get from the company that they like is better when there's other alternatives in the marketplace. Absolutely, yeah. It's, absolutely. it's, it's the first lesson you learn in economics. No, right? absolutely. I think too many people don't under, understand that. And, and, you know, someone goes on Twitter, they say something positive about AEW. The WWE trolls come out of the woodwork, you know, the, the, the so-called keyboard warriors. And I just don't get this us-versus-them mentality. You can enjoy the, the company you like and the product you like and still let me have my AEW. Why are you trying to take that away from me just because you prefer WWE? So I would like a, a broader realization for both people in the industry and outside of it that competition is good. Choices are good for everybody. Absolutely. I mean, if you, all, all you've got to do is look at all you got to do is look at 1997 mm-hmm. as a year for the WBF. That was in. I think that was my favourite year for WBF. It was. It was a great year for them, and one of the biggest reasons why is because they were getting their ass kicked by WCW. You know, Nitro beat them for what 83 weeks. I think that's right. I think Eric Bischoff yep. should redo a podcast and call it yep. 83 weeks, so we, so we know how many weeks it was. But yeah, yeah, I think it was. <laughs> it was. Um, 97 was such a big year, and. Absolutely, WWE has had a monopoly on the wrestling business for so long now. I mean, there was that time when Impact or TNA, you know, got really good around sort of 2006, 2007, when mm-hmm. when Kurt Angle went there and yep. they had Samoa Joe and AJ and all those great talents. I think it kind of, I wouldn't say Hogan and Bischoff absolutely killed the company when they came in, but I don't think they helped it at all when they came in in like 2010. But, um, yeah, Impact was like a distant number two mm-hmm. for, for many, many years. But now we've got AEW, and yeah. they are doing great. I mean, even the Brody Lee tribute show, which mm-hmm. I think is unfair to compare it to other shows because it's, it's mm-hmm. a standalone, different mm-hmm. type of show. But even that, I mean, it was done so, so mm-hmm. well. Tony Khan has no real history of putting on wrestling shows, but yet he gets it, and he does it so well. I think he's doing a tremendous job right now, isn't he? Yeah, and I think a big part of what I think AEW does right is they understand that at the end of the day, it's about the fans. It's about making the fans feel like if they invested two hours in your show, that that was time well spent, and that they want to invest those two hours again the next week. So you've got to give them what they want. You've got to give them some fun. And even the pay-per-views, I bought every pay-per-view. I have, for all of them, felt like I've gotten more than my money's worth. And I couldn't always say that when I was paying for, you know, WWF and WCW pay-per-views. You know, with the screwy finishes and, oh, we're, we're just building to TV the next night. So I think AEW really has done a great job of, of really putting the wrestling fan kind of at the center. Um, and, you know, TNA, they've been around since, what, 2002, 2003. I was one of the idiots who bought those uh, $10 pay-per-views, you know, when, when they first came out. They, they've never really been a... a a contender. There's just talk about a company shooting itself in the foot whenever it gets something good going. Oh, yeah. I remember the first Monday when they went head to head. Again, my friends and I were super pumped. We're like, we're going to watch this. And the first match they had, it was an X Division Escape the Cage match. And this cage was shaped like like a big top circus tent. Oh, is this when they had? It's when they had the six sided ring. Yeah. So the cage they were supposed to climb out of, Spider Man couldn't have climbed out of this thing. <laughs> And so like, this is your first impression when you're trying to go head-to-head with Raw. I said, that's it. You know, this once TNA, always TNA. 
And I've actually tried to get back in impact over the, the last month or so with, you know, the Kenny Omega, Don Callis oh, that was a promotional yeah. thing. I think that could be an awesome opportunity. But my, my issue with the first show uh, was it was taped, you know, well in advance, which is fine. But, you know, TNA now is very storyline driven. Mm-hmm. And I know that a bunch of us were watching in the Facebook group and it was a common theme of who is this? Why, why is he with him? Who, who, who's doing it here? And I think that they didn't do a good enough job recognizing that there were going to be a lot of new viewers there, really explaining things to us, which they could have done with more on-screen graphics, maybe some more video packages or some, you know, some additional uh, commentary. So, you know, that, and by the second week of it, you know, they were back down to their usual number. So I think that was a huge missed opportunity, but we'll see where it goes. I'm hoping it rebounds. I I love the idea of promotions working together. Um, And and I would hope, I, I would love to have a Tuesday night show that I enjoy watching uh, in Impact. Yeah, I I never liked the uh, the six sided ring. I I, I get it. You, you want to do something that sets it. You you want to do something that sets it apart from WWE. Uh, but I do think that was one thing the Hogan and Bischoff did did right was when they did away with the six sided ring when they came along. But um, yeah, I, I watched that show. I mean, I I try and watch Impact as much as i can i'm i'm a few weeks behind because i just couldn't really get into it properly I and mean, i i do like a lot of the talent there there's some really good workers there but like you say that kenny omega thing was was such a great opportunity to grab some new viewers and they did get a lot of new viewers mm-hmm. that week who stayed with it i mean they, they watched the whole show mm-hmm. but then the following week they didn't come back you know so you didn't yeah. do, you didn't do enough to hook to hook them really yeah, the other problem I had was, um, you know, just the, the look of the show. The black arena, not yeah. a thing happened in the background. That was fine in March when Absolutely. we were new to this. Yeah. People were figuring it out, but we've just seen baseballs figured it out. They had the cardboard cutouts. Uh, hockey did, like, these LED things in the, in, the, in, in the arena. Like, everybody's found a way to liven up the atmosphere, even without fans. And I just think that was a, you know... You just you turn that on. It, it it just it was a very boring visual. So not again. It's not the not the biggest part of a wrestling show, but I think it just makes you think again. This is kind of like same old you know TNA impact. Yeah, it sort of feels like the the early WWE shows from from. Um... The, you know, the early start of the pandemic from like as you say yeah. from like march where mm-hmm. there was nobody there like wrestlemania this year you know wrestlemania mm-hmm. in front of absolutely nobody at the performance center that's kind of what it feels like and you can hear the commentators at ringside um in the actual arena because they're, they're right there yeah. by the ring as well which is not a good not a good thing but um yeah no i thought it was a huge missed opportunity for impact mm-hmm. I, I will you know i'll probably watch it, here and there, I'm looking forward actually to seeing the match with uh, Kenny and mm-hmm. uh, the Good Brothers versus Rich Swan and the I think it's Mercy Machine Guns, isn't it? A six, uh, in a in a six man tag at the next pay per view. I will I will check it out, you know, and I want to give them a chance. Mm-hmm. I'll give any company a chance, you know, because I I want to see wrestling be successful mm-hmm. and there be as many outlets for guys as possible. You know, when, when WWE let all those guys go back in yeah. back in April, when they didn't really need to, let's be honest. I mean, they had the most profitable year they've ever had last year. They had no reason to really cut anyone, yeah. but they did. There's many places these guys can go, and that's great. That, that's a, that's a good thing, as you say. I don't know why people would see that as a negative. These you know WWE fans that only see WWE and don't want mm-hmm. to see anyone else be successful. 
Yeah, and you know, when when people are critical of WWE, it's not because they don't like WWE as a company. It's because they don't like the product WWE is putting out. I would love it if WWE were good again. I want nothing more than to enjoy WWE. You know, so when I critique them, it's not because I hate I hate them. It's because I want them to be better. I want I want them to do the things that made me fall in love with them in the first place. The spontaneity. Wrestling used to be fun. And when I watch WWE now, it's more frustrating than it is fun. What do you think to the argument that, that Triple H builds these guys up in NXT, whether yeah. it's Nakamura or it's um, a, a more recent example like Keith Lee? Mm-hmm. They come up to the main roster and they flounder. Do you think that if it is Triple H that takes over from Vince, mm-hmm. uh, we, we, have, we have no idea you know, when that will yeah. be. Yeah, Vince, Vince's mother is still alive. At, you know, I think yeah. like 101 or something. So yeah. Vince yeah. could still be Vince could still be running at 100. We don't know. But if Triple H is the guy to take over, do you think that will be better? Do you think we could start to see some improvement then? Or you know, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? It can't be any worse, is what I would say. <laughs> and I think, you know, the, the, the big disconnect I see with the guys that Triple H is, is, you know, promoting in NXT, Bobby Roode was the NXT champion for a while. Sorry, but I look at Bobby Roode, and I see nothing more than a boring, bland mid-carder on the main <laughs> roster. And I think what Triple H needs to do a better job of is what OVW did a great job of, which is saying, we know what Vince likes. So we're going to take your John Cena's, your Randy Orton's, your Batista's, your Kurt Angle's, your um, however Brock Lesnar's, however many top guys came out of OVW, and we're going to train that. We're going to train those guys up to be top guys. You know, there seemed to be much better alignment between the OVW system and making top guys successful in WWE than you know a guy like Finn Balor gets over huge in NXT and then Vince just sees this this tiny little man you know and it doesn't really get an opportunity and and I think it's such a blown opportunity because you know when guys used to debut like when Cena debuted from OVW Batista all those guys they were complete unknowns to the to the fans of WWE because there was no network the only way to see OVW was if you lived in that area and you could watch the local television which was like 100 people you know, but with NXT, they have an opportunity to make people superstars before they even set foot through the main roster door. And I think it's such a shame that the biggest pop most of these guys get is when they debut on the main roster. Like Nakamura, for example, yeah. Oh, go down the list. Uh, your Baileys, your Nakamura, uh, a lot of guys. I mean, just up, uh, up and down the list. It's like their debut is, is the high point. And it's all downhill from there. Even Enzo yeah. and Kaz, when, when they came yeah. there, that huge reaction when they first came in. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely agree that, um, I don't know, because going forward, you know, Bruce Pritchard is someone that's very much looked at as a yes man, but he, he knows what Vince likes. So, I mean, he's been, one of the biggest reasons why he's been there for so long, I mean, obviously he, he was away from the company for a number of years as well but one of the biggest reasons he keeps coming back is because he's someone that Vince trusts and can rely on um, I don't know if anybody else really like that anymore mm. because obviously with Pat Patterson passing away yeah. is there anybody I can't really think of anyone in that in sort of Vince's inner circle if you like 
No, I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, the six guys who would have been sitting around Vince's pool in the mid-90s. It would have been uh, Patterson, maybe Briscoe, but they fired him. Um, JR, he's gone. Cornette, obviously not. No, I mean, it's it's pretty much Bruce, you know, the guy who's been there for a long time. And, of course, uh, Stephanie. You know, I don't know what role she has in creative nowadays. I guess she's more on the uh, the corporate brand side of things. But, yeah, other than Bruce, I can't think of anybody. And what about, what do you think Paul Heyman's sort of role going forward? And they, they sort of gave him a chance to sort of be the lead writer of Raw for a while. And it, it felt like he was really pushing a lot of new mm-hmm. guys, a lot of new talent, which, which, which is what you've got to do. I mean, everyone says that's the biggest problem they have is they, they, they don't get behind mm-hmm. new talent enough. So he was getting behind Alistair Black and Andrade and, and all these great young Angel Garza. Mm-hmm. But now look at them. Look, I mean, Alistair yeah. Black, I, I don't even know what he's doing now. I mean, I think he asked to get sent back to NXT, didn't he? And, and that uh, got rejected. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just such a... I don't know. I mean, Vince... Um, uh, Vince is not very... He's not a very patient man. And he won't give <laughs> people a chance is, is the biggest issue. But there's so many guys, I mean, mm-hmm. that could have been mm-hmm. something. You know, Cesaro... Yep. Rusev, Wade Barrett. I mean, the list yep. is just endless, isn't it, of guys that could have been something, but they just seem to give up on them. Yeah, and you know, when I think of guys who would be perfect uh, to jump over to AEW, I, I agree with people who say, well, they shouldn't take the WWE guys. We don't want them seeming like you know TNA taking mid-carders from WWE and making them main eventers in AEW, but guys like Rusev, guys like Cesaro, guys who basically got themselves over and then had the rug pulled out from under them. Those are the guys, for me, who would be perfect. What is your... Over to, yeah. Sorry, what, what, what do you make of what Miro's done in AEW so far? Because I've not been overly yeah. impressed with his presentation thus far. No, again, it's hard to say, though, with, without fans, and, you know, it has been a short time, but I, I thought they should have gone out, gotten Aiden English and do Miro Day. You know, do it like, do it right. Right, Or something yeah. like that. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying about, like, you don't, you don't want to take every WWE has been. Well, no, the because... Guys who, yeah, Sorry, the go The guys on. who should have been, should have been main eventers had the WWE system been well-functioning. Those, those guys, to me, are the, the ones who, if I'm AEW, I give them an opportunity because we already know they can get over. They did it. And we won't pull the rug out from under them. Because everyone loves seeing Rowan on the on the Brody tribute show last week, and they, 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 we we must sign him. They must sign him. But I don't know if he necessarily needs to do that. I mean, if if they do yeah. sign him, great. But I just don't really see what he can what can he really bring to AEW right now. I, I don't think he's just sign guys for the sake of it. There has to be a, a reason behind mm-hmm. it and a, a direction for them. Um, but they, they've got a lot of talent, and obviously not everyone gets a chance to shine every single week but that's not a bad thing you know i i think it's a good thing that you've got so much talent because you can kind of focus on people for a certain time and they can sort of fade out for a little while and then come back in and that's not a bad thing you haven't got to be on tv every single week you know sometimes absence makes yeah. the heart grow fonder and sometimes you know not seeing someone for a while is, is not a bad thing yeah, and you know, for the guys not on TV, they typically have a boatload of matches on that AEW Dark Show. So That's guys get the, yeah. they get the in-ring time, they get to build their records, so they can still push guys 
by giving them you know a, a nice win loss record on dark, even if they're not uh, being shown on TV. Because you can bring in like uh, oh, what's his name? Evan Bourne. I can't think of this, his actual name. Uh, Matt Seidel. You can you can bring in a Matt Seidel every now and again on Dynamite. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know he's going to have a good match because he's a great talent but he's not going to be there every week you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's a guy that's right. perfect to put on dark every week so yeah I can definitely say anyway we're, we're going off on several tangents here but that's kind of how this, these shows tend to go but we could talk for a lot longer I'm sure and, and um, I'd love to have you back on at some point because um, as I say to every guest on this show obviously I'm doing this podcast but I want to do more podcasts as well mm-hmm. um, so I would love to have you back at some point it would be my pleasure. So, uh, Tim Page, thank you very much, and I will talk to you. I'm going to use a Brian Alvarez line, which you might appreciate. Um, <laughs> I'll talk to you again after a after while. After a while. <laughs>